But this evening we're going to do something that I've never done before. Uh, I wanted a bit of a, a challenge and I thought it would be helpful uh, for us to look together at uh, what we're looking at this evening. We're going to look at a bit of church history. And the first thing you're going to say, why church history? That seems, seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? Normally we're looking at a passage of the Bible, explaining a passage of the Bible. Uh, why are we doing this? Well, first of all, uh, part of it is that we want Sunday evenings to be a little bit different from Sunday mornings. There's a danger, actually, that if we look at, uh, we've got life groups looking at a passage of the Bible, we've got Sunday mornings looking at a passage of the Bible, and if we do exactly the same on Sunday evening, actually we can get so much that we can't actually digest what we're looking at. That can be really hard sometimes. So Sunday evenings we've wanted to have a different feel, which is why we've been doing like whole books of the Bible, we've been doing more topical talks, and so that's one of the reasons why we're doing something a bit different on a Sunday evening. But why go here? Why go to church history? Well, the first reason is that it keeps us from going off the rails. One of the things that uh, you find with groups that do go off the rails, that go a bit crazy, go into heresy, go into cults and things like that, is that actually they have very little sense of church history. They don't actually know uh, where the church has been before. And one of the ways that those uh, groups work is that they say that basically everything that's gone before is wrong. I want to ditch everything that's gone before. We just look at this. But actually, we've got a whole 2,000 years of people looking at the Bible and understanding it. And we can use that, we can learn from that as we go uh, through. So church history is helpful to sort of see where have we gone wrong before and how can we avoid that now. The second reason is that actually it's quite useful in sharing our faith. I know that sounds a little bit strange, but I think it is useful in sharing our faith. Some of the questions that people have in our society are about the Bible, but quite a lot of them actually focus on what the church has done in the past. They want to know why the church acted in a certain way, or they want to know what was the evidence of this happening or that happening. And we'll see that as we look at Polycarp this evening, actually there is a relevance for our sharing our faith. It actually helps us understand uh, and be more certain of what we've got uh, in the Bible. The third reason is it helps us understand how we got to where we are. So in other words, there are certain convictions that we have as believers that have sort of been narrowed down through the years. We've got clearer and clearer as the years have gone on. And it's useful to look back and understand the processes and the arguments and debates that were had through the years to understand where we, why we are, where we are. So it's not just that we're starting with a blank slate, actually we're building on 2,000 years of history. And we're the heirs of people who've done a lot of the thinking before us. So it helps us understand uh, how we got to where we are. And then finally, looking at church history, uh, Luke gives us a precedent in the Bible. So we've got the book of Acts. It would be easy to just finish with Jesus' death and resurrection. But Luke actually carries on the story and tells us what happened in the early church. Luke thought that that would be helpful for the church to have a record of what happened. So we actually see this kind of thing in the Bible. We see that actually following the events of Christians can be a helpful thing to do. What I want to say this evening, though, is that unlike Luke in Acts, what we're going to say this evening, the historical info that we're going to talk about, is fallible. Okay? So I'll say a big sort of at the beginning, as far as we know. Okay? So all the stuff that's historical is as far as we know, with the best information that we have. Otherwise, I have to say that every sentence as we go through with the historical stuff, but take that as the big one at the beginning. All the historical stuff is as far as we know, whereas when we're looking at the Bible, we can be absolutely certain that what the Bible says is 100% accurate. 
So, this evening, we're going to talk about Polycarp. Now, who was Polycarp? Well, Polycarp was a very early believer. That's why we're starting off here with uh, church history. He lived from 69 AD to 155 AD. So, to give you an idea in terms of timeline, that's what it looks like. So, Polycarp was born only a few years, really, after Jesus died. And he was a disciple, a pupil, of the Apostle John, who was the last surviving apostle. And they studied together. He was his uh, disciple's pupil for many, many years of John's life. We're told from early letters from other believers that mention Polycarp that he met some of the other apostles as well. So as we read about Polycarp, actually we're reading about somebody who knew the disciples, and especially knew the apostle uh, John. He eventually became uh, a church leader in Smyrna, one of the seven churches written to by John in Revelation. And uh, that's modern day Izmir in uh, Turkey. I'll let them cheer there uh, for Turkey. Um, but uh, that's where he lived. Um, so it, we're talking about the area where actually we've got a lot of churches that you read about in the Bible, a lot of people that we know. As far as we, uh, as far as we go back, as far as we know, we only have little snippets of his life because it's so long ago. Uh, we only know little bits about his life. As we go forward with different people, we're going to know a little bit more. But uh, we do know that he went to Rome to join in a debate about when Easter should be celebrated. Uh, that didn't go well, as the East and West still have different takes to this day, but they were already debating it way back there. Uh, he had a run-in while in Rome with a heretic called Marcion. There we go. And uh, Marcion was also from modern-day Turkey. Not so good. He was a, a, a bad uh, heretic. But Marcion was a catalyst in many ways for the church getting sorted on what was and wasn't scripture. Marcion wrote a list of what he considered scripture that skipped things like the Old Testament, for example. He didn't have the Old Testament as being scripture. He believed that it wasn't from God. He also had a, a sort of shortened version of the New Testament. He didn't like any letters that weren't Paul's. So he had ten of Paul's letters, and he produced a shortened version of Luke's Gospel with all the Old Testament quotations removed. You get an idea of this guy? Okay? But he was the first person to actually sit down and write a list of what he considered to be the New Testament. And this prompted the church to start to compile lists of what really was considered scripture by the church, by people who were genuine believers, so that Marcion's abridged version wouldn't catch on. So the heresy there actually prompted something good. It prompted the church to get a bit more sorted on that. And he and Polycarp, who you remember was a disciple of John, John being one of the writers, or being the writer, sorry, of John's Gospel, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation, all of which were missed out in Marcion's list. They did not get on so well. Marcion apparently asked Polycarp, do you know who I am? You really get an idea of this guy, don't you? Do you know who I am? To which Polycarp replied, yes, I know you very well. You are the firstborn son of the devil. So he definitely uh, gave him a bit of a, uh, <laughs> a bit of a kicking. Definitely not a people pleaser. But uh, he called it well, well before many others in the church had noticed just how dangerous Marcion would be. Actually, Polycarp caught on and denounced him uh, publicly. Polycarp also wrote um, several letters uh, to many places that you would have heard of from in, in the Bible over the east of the Mediterranean. Only one of those letters uh, survives, 
uh, which was his letter to the Philippians. It's not a long letter, it's a little bit shorter than the book of Ephesians, a little bit longer than the letter of 1 John. And it covers all sorts of topics, I've read it through this week. There's instructions about deacons and elders, there's instructions about avoiding people that deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. There's exhortations to patience and perseverance and standing firm. And he clearly cares for the Philippians. You can read it as you go through that he actually genuinely cares about the people that he's writing to. But as well as that, packed into this short letter, remember it's only about the size of Ephesians, there are 48 quotes from the New Testament. Okay, not the Old Testament, the New Testament. 48 quotes. And the points are almost like a machine gun of quotes as we go through. And in the letter he says that he's quoting scripture. Now bear in mind this was written about 110 AD. And he knew some of the people that had been writing uh, these letters. Having said that, Peter of course calls Paul's writings scripture into Peter. And those 48 quotes come from 17 different New Testament books. Okay? And there are no quotes from what we'd now call the apocryphal books. There's no Gospel of Thomas there, or Shepherd of Hermas, or, or any of those other letters that you always sort of see, of, oh, why aren't they included in the Bible? His 48 quotes from 17 books all come from books that we would consider New Testament now. And this was way before any church councils sort of sat down. You often say, oh, the Bible wasn't decided until much later on. Well, Polycarp certainly knew what he considered scripture. And this is way before uh, all those councils, and it's also just one of his letters. This isn't a sort of collection of several different letters. This is one letter. So imagine what the other ones were like. But already by this time, this letter that was written maybe 110, 120 AD, there was a good understanding of what was scripture and what wasn't scripture. And this letter, by the way, some people, when you look at the writings around this age, some people dispute whether they were really written by that person or really written at that time. Polycarp's is a solid one. Um, so even the skeptics reckon, reckon this was written around that time by someone called Polycarp. So it's a good one to point to, to say, actually, we know that there was a good understanding of Scripture all the way back then. But despite all that, what's most known about Polycarp is his death. He died in 155 AD by being burnt alive. Reports say that he refused nails and that Christ would give him the strength to stand there when he burnt. Some reports say that the flames didn't ultimately do him in and they had to stab him with a spear uh, afterwards. But before he was uh, burnt uh, alive, he was given the chance to escape punishment. He was told by the, uh, the leader of the, uh, the area, the proconsul, curse Christ and I will release you. And this is his reply, it's his most famous words. He said, 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? That was Polycarp's looking back on his life. How could he betray his king when his king had been so faithful to him? When he was told that that would mean that he'd be burnt alive, apparently he said back to them, you've threatened fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. That was his view. I'd rather spend an hour in the fire than go to eternal judgment. He was, or even then, he was warning them of what was coming. And Polycarp is one of those who endured to the end. 
he kept going. Even if it cost him his life, he would not betray his king, who had kept him all his 86 years. So that's who Polycarp is. What can we learn from Polycarp? What can he teach us? Well, the Apostle John wrote to the church where Polycarp was leader, possibly around that time. Uh, possibly around the time that he was actually there. It's the only church in Revelation that he has praise for, only praise. He has praise for the Lord, but like exclusively praise. And this is what he wrote to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, Polycarp was one of those people who got the crown of life. He was faithful unto death. And if there's anything that Polycarp embodies, characterises, engenders, it's faithfulness. That's why we had that passage of the fruit of the Spirit read earlier. If you want to look at faithfulness in somebody's life, have a look at Polycarp. He was faithful in life. He didn't shrink back from challenging Marcion. He was the guy that the East thought was reliable and faithful enough to send to Rome to represent their side of the Easter debate. He was the guy who faithfully wrote to churches around his area. Not just his own church he looked after, but he wrote to other churches and tried to help them as well. So he was faithful in life, and he was faithful in death. His faithfulness in life prepared him for his faithfulness in death. And the Lord's faithfulness to him, his 86 years, helped him to make that ultimate sacrifice. Now I don't want to do a whitewash here on Polycarp. Polycarp, I'm sure, had his faults. Unfortunately, history hasn't recorded any of them for us. Uh, we're going to see a few more statements with faults as we go through, but for Polycarp, we just don't know. There's an unfortunate style of writing called the hagiography that just records the good things that Christians did and not the bad things. I want to avoid that with these talks, but with Polycarp, we just don't have any information. We just don't know uh, what the things were, that where we went wrong. What we can say, though, is that his faithfulness is a reflection in a mirror of Christ's faithfulness. A pale reflection but one that shares many similar features. As I said, he was faithful in life. And if you think about Christ, he too didn't shrink back from challenging false teachers and false teaching. He called the Pharisees whitewashed rapes and snakes, didn't he? He didn't sort of mince his words. He was the faithful son of God that the Father sent to complete his mission. And he faithfully ministered to the people around him. Unlike Polycarp, Christ was faithful in death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, um, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Christ was faithful to the end, and he offered up his life to God. And so we too can imitate our Lord Jesus Christ in the way that Polycarp highlights. So this evening, are we faithful men and faithful women? Are we faithful boys and girls as we seek to follow Christ? Do we shrink back or do we press on in faith? Do we take those risks that Polycarp took? It's unlikely that we'll have to die for our faith, like Polycarp did. But it's very likely that we'll have to stand uh, to take stands that cost us. We already do, don't we? Are we prepared for that? Will we do that? Well, Polycarp is a wonderful example of someone who did. And this is how he finished his letter. I thought this was quite good because it's like... 
Everyone used to say this during lockdown, as soon as that did. Polycarp, way ahead of his time. This is how he finished his letter to the Philippians. He said, Be safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all. Amen. That's what he wanted. Well, let's pray that we will be safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Polycarp and the way that he points us to the example of Christ. Father, we pray that we would be faithful men and women, faithful in our lives as we speak and live for you. And Father, if you call us to, then Father, faithful in our death too. Father, we pray that our character would reflect that fruit of the Spirit, that faithfulness, that we keep going, that we keep trusting, that we are faithful to you. And Father, thank you so much for Polycarp's testimony of your faithfulness to him. 86 years you kept him. Father, pray that you would keep us and that we would be safe in Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.